monetary system and a part of our lives for all my life. And um, just looked back a little bit and found out that In God We Trust became our official national motto in 1956. It is our official uh, national motto. It originates from the Star Spangled Banner that um, Francis Scott Key wrote in 18 and 12 in that there is an In God We Trust line and from that it became a motto that was used on various um, dollar bills and also various coins and uh, in the latter part of the 18th, of the 1800s it became a staple part of, of every monetary system and by the 1960s uh, uh, we see it everywhere on any kind of coin or dollar. Um, and it's a good thing. How many of you agree with that? I think we ought to hang on to that motto. I think we might ought to live by that motto. Um, and so thank God we live in a nation. So I was studying about 1956 and how that our Congress passed a law stating that it would be our national motto. And the reason was we were in the middle of the Cold War during that time. Many of you are, uh, didn't live in the era of the Cold War. Uh, you live in the era of terrorism. But we, we grew up in the era of, era of the Cold War where the Soviet Union was our enemy and a constant threat. And because they were atheistic and promoted an atheistic philosophy of life, our country said we want to distinguish ourselves from the Soviet Union who is statedly atheistic and we want to state that we are a Christian nation and that we're trusting in our God. Wow. Well, the Soviet Union is no more. Today we're facing terrorism. And it's still important for us to say, in God we trust. I just mentioned how that growing up, we grew up in the era where movies were about Russia and spies and nuclear wars and all those kind of things. And Russia slash the Soviet Union was kind of the, the, the feared enemy of America when I was growing up. But you need to understand that there are millions of Americans that didn't live in the Cold War, but they have grown up in, a, in an era where terrorism is our great threat, walking through metal detectors, constant alerts, amber, green, and red, um, constant reports on attacks happening around the world, periodically homegrown terrorists uh, act out here in this country. And so I believe that that um, has given rise to much of the, 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 the uh, worship songs that we're singing. Earlier, our worship team did a great job singing, I am a child of God. And I'm always intrigued, it's a generational thing, but I'm intrigued how a line in there says over and over again, I am no longer a slave to fear. You know, um, I relate to that because um, I'm connected with this generation but I have to tell you that I've never been a slave to fear. And my generation doesn't relate to that. Now, there was other generations that would have, but my generation didn't relate to, be, to so much fear. But when we study this day and time, we find out that young people, the, our younger generation, they live with fear because of the constant threat of terrorism. 
So that's why these songs come forth. And if you'll notice, many of the songs we sing mention fear in a way that uh, I didn't grow up in. So if there ever was a day that we need to, in God we trust, it ought to be right now. So I want to talk to you about trusting God. Um, It's certainly our personal motto as Christians. I'm trusting Him for my salvation, trusting Him for my protection, my provision, generally my help in life. I trust in God for my health, my family, my marriage, my children. I trust in God for my finances, my career, my business, the stock market, my retirement. You see, my future is in God's hands. When we talk about trusting God, we're speaking to the unknown future. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. Not much of the future can we control. So we trust God for the unknown and we trust God for the uncontrollable. That which is beyond my power to affect, I give to God. My personal motto is, I always do my best, trust God for the rest. Whatever I'm doing, I realize that there is something I put in it. And the rest, I trust God for. And so it's my responsibility to always put my best in, give it my very best, whether that's a good or, or not so good, better or worse than someone else, I have to give it my personal best, and then I trust God for the rest. That's the way it is. Someone could do better than I could do. Someone might not do as good as I can do. But when you add me plus God, it's 100%. And it doesn't matter who the me is, when you add God to it, it's always enough. So I want to talk to you today about trusting God, believing God. I want to build your faith, combat your fears, and I want to encourage you to have hope and to launch your dreams like never before. You see, if you don't have trust, your future um, is in question. Your life is no longer in motion. You have to trust. You have to take risk. You have to gamble. You have to go for it, not sure what the outcome is going to be. You have to be, have the courage to try something you've never tried, attempt something you've never attempted, do something you're not certain of the outcome, go for something you can't control all the factors, not knowing tomorrow. We just go for it. That's called trusting God. Now, There is the word faith, and there is the word trust. I believe that these words are twins. When you have trust, you have faith, and when you have faith, you have trust. But trust seems to speak to that uncontrollable parts of our life, that unknown part of our life, that unexpectedness about life. Trust said, I can't control it, I can't foresee it, I don't know what's going to happen, but anyway, I'm going to trust God. So, the question is, what are you putting your trust in? There must be a distinct difference between a child of God and a person that is not. A child of God puts their trust in God. The Bible warns us where not to put our faith. For instance, 
In the book of Psalm 20 and 7, the psalmist said, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. Chariots and horses don't mean a lot to me and you today in this world, but that was a military symbol. It was a symbol of wealth, power, dominance. When you had chariots and horses, it meant authority. It means safety. It means a strong government, a strong military, a safe environment. You know, there was a day when America was more safe than she is today. There was a day when we could just simply buy a ticket, walk straight on an airplane, and sit down and and never give it a second thought. And then after September of 2001, we have to go through all the sorts of things just to climb on board an airplane. You see, there was a day when America was more safe than she is today. You see, God has a protective covering and a shield over all of our lives. It covers us and protects us. He has a shield and a protective covering over America. Now, just because that we have that shield doesn't mean we're never going to have a challenge, a difficulty, or a problem. The fact is, you and I can interfere with that protective shield by disobedience, by mistakes we made, omissions, by lack of faith, by just not obeying or utilizing the principles of God. And so this shield can be interrupted. It, It can, my protection can be broken by my own activity. Secondly, there are times when God will simply lift the shield. And we wouldn't know that so clearly if God had not given us the book of Job. I don't know if you've read the book of Job lately, but you you should read it periodically because uh, there's a lesson that we have to continually remind ourselves in it. You remember how that, first of all, Job is one of the oldest characters in the Bible. This year, I'm reading verse by verse through the Bible again, and I chose, Gil, a chronological Bible. And the chronological Bible is unique because the story of God is presented in a chronological order. Your Bible that you're reading out of today is a collection of books written by some 40 40 different authors over a period of some 4,000 years, and it's a collection of individual books. So it isn't written chronologically, and the story doesn't unfold in that order. So I'm reading a chronological day-by-day Bible, and it, it puts the story in the order that it probably happened. And so when you read through the Genesis, suddenly you ran into the book of Job. Abraham hadn't happened yet because Job happened even before Abraham. There was a man of the Far East named Job. And the Bible says that Job was a perfect man, that he was a blameless man, and in no way did he offend God. Long before there was an Abraham, there was a man named Job that was perfect and blameless. And on a certain day, the sons of God uh, came before the throne of God. And while there, Satan was mandated to be a part of that high-level meeting, even though in rebellion, and God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? How that he is perfect, how that he is blameless, how that everything he does is according to righteousness. 
And in a cocky, arrogant kind of a way, Satan replies in this narrative between God and Satan, well, yeah, I guess so. You blessed everything his hands touched. You've given him more than everyone else, and you've protected him all around, and I can't get to him to do harm in any way. I guess he does serve you. So God said, well, let's lift the covering. Let's put a gap in the wall. And I'm going to let Satan, you go through that gap, and I'm going to let you put your hand on him, and we're going to find out whether Job is doing this because he loves me, or he's just a good businessman that knows where his bread is buttered. (laughs) And so, his wealth began to disappear. His personal assets evaporated. And to make it worse, he lost every son and daughter in death that he had. And yet the Bible says that in all of that, Job did not blame God. He questioned why it was happening. And for chapter after chapter, he and his friends go back and forth trying to make sense of the confusing day and circumstance he was living in. And at the end, they never figured it out. But the Bible teaches that all along the way, while Job was so confused by what in the world had happened and why this was going on in his life, he never blamed God, he never charged God, he never cursed God in his heart. He just kept trusting in the love, trusting in the character of God, trusting in the compassion of God, trusting in the providence of God. He just kept trusting God. And one of the most powerful verses in that entire book is where Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow. Even if he takes my life. I mean, he's taken everything else. I don't have anything but my life left. Even my health is gone. But even if I don't have another breath in my body, I will not blame God. I will not charge God. I will not be angry at God. I will not question his love or his integrity. I'm just going to trust God. That is the greatest definition of trust you'll ever find in the world is a man named Job that had everything and lost everything. And all because God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been under consideration? When Satan put Job under consideration, his life pretty much went to... Some of you here today might be under consideration. It may have nothing to do with faults, failures, or sins you have somewhere in the past. It may not be your fault at all. The story of Job is about a man that didn't do anything right, but did ev- didn't do anything wrong, but did everything right. And still, bad things happen. And so if you're under consideration today, I want to encourage you to trust God. And even though you don't understand why it happened or what could possibly come out of it, just keep on trusting God. And say like our forefather Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Can you say amen?
Some put their trust in man. But again, God warns us against this. He said, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than put your confidence in princes or politicians. So when we put our faith in man, generally, we're often going to be disappointed, let down, feeling betrayed. If we put our confidence in politicians, we must remember they're only men. But the psalmist said, it is better to put our trust in God than in man. It doesn't mean that we have a negative view of mankind. It just means we don't have an inflated view either. Our trust, our hope is in the Lord. Some people trust in money. I've heard it said that it's easier to trust in money than it is to trust God for your money. But the psalmist, the apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So sometimes when you're doing well and uh, you've got a good income, you've got good insurance policies, a, a, a good, good job, good inflow of money, got a little bit of savings, got things paid for, got a little money left over, you're feeling good. And you're thinking, man, I got this thing. Thinking that because I have money, I'm okay. And... Paul said that there is deceitfulness in riches, that there's deceitful in thinking that because I am well fixed financially and I don't have any great financial issues that I'm okay. I believe God wants all of us to be strong financially, but he warns us when you are strong, don't forget that it was God who gave you the power to produce wealth. Don't forget the source of your blessing. And don't forget how quickly money can vanish and how deceitful riches can be. What if? What if we believed God and trusted Him? We didn't put our confidence in ourselves or the government or other men. We didn't put our confidence in money. We put our confidence and our trust in God. It was in this frame of mind that Psalm 37, verses 3 through 6 was written. Trust in God and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. I love this verse. I'm reading to you today from the New King James Version. Feed on His faithfulness. Feed on His faithfulness. It's a mindset. It's a way of life. It's, it's a perspective. It's a privilege of a child of God. Like a sheep turned into green pastures. The pasture belongs to the owner. The sheep owner says, take my sheep and let them eat freely in my pasture. And so day and night, the sheep graze the green grass from corner to corner at will, freely. And they just learn how to feed on the goodness of the owner.
And so you and I, God is saying, just feed on my faithfulness. Just feed on the assurance that I'm watching over you, that I'm taking care of you, that everything's going to be all right. And even when you don't know why it happened or exactly what is about to happen, just feed on my faithfulness. I just think as I'm sharing this verse with you today, that somebody's going to leave here with this little phrase in their mind, and you might forget everything else that I've said today, but this little phrase is going to stick in your mind. Today, I'm just going to feed on God's faithfulness. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to believe Him. I'm going to refuse fear, doubt, worry, and unbelief. I'm not going to hear threats or negative reports. I'm just going to feed on His faithfulness. Can you say amen? Amen. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. What a powerful promise that is from God. It's a way of life to just do good. Feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And those big what-ifs, he's his pleasure to give it to us. You know how happy God gets in blessing us? He gets as happy as Pastor Renee, as she was filling out of our little Valentine cards for all of our grandkids. She spent several hours buying little things and getting boxes and cards, and, and she's getting it all ready for them. And she's just having a blast. And I was thinking there as she was working so energetically on those things, how that my little grandkids, they're going to open those gifts and they're going to be so excited and they're going to give Nene a big hug and they're going to love her so much. Then they're just going to go back to play with whatever they were doing before then. (laughs) And the fact is, she spent hours just dreaming about what am I going to get this one and what am I going to get that one and where can I find it and writing little special notes. And her giving process was hours and pleasure and delight. But you know how little kids are. They get all excited and, you know, it's kind of like what's next. You know that's the way our God is. He gets all excited about arranging my blessing setting up something good for me. He gets all excited. He spends weeks and months just setting up a blessing, setting up something good for me. And sometime like a little child, we just celebrate it and go on to the next thing. And God spent weeks and hours and days and years arranging that certain situation just to bless you and me. Oh, we serve a good God, don't we? Yeah, we do. Fear is a paralyzer. It immobilizes us. And um, it, it freezes our life. You know, as I understand it, decisions is what moves my life forward. Like, if I make good decisions, those decisions is what keeps my life going. But if I get frozen, and I don't know what to do, and I'm uncertain, and I'm fearful, and I can't make a decision, my life's on hold. So I don't go forward until I make a decision. So that decision-making process is very important. I have to make it, and I have to make it right, because if I'm too slow to make it, then it slows my whole life down. 
And if I'm too quick to make it, my life speeds up, but I'm more likely to make mistakes. And so uh, everybody needs to have a pace of decision, a pace. You need to have a process of making a decision. And for people, different personalities, they make decisions in different ways and at different paces. Like I, 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 I work with wonderful people that do very well, but they make their, quit, their decisions a lot faster than I do. And I just, I'm like, whoop, slow down, you better think about that a little more. But I have other people in my life, Howard, they make their decisions so slow, they drive me nuts. Right, wrong, indifferent, it don't matter, just make a decision, please. So we all individually have a pace, and that pace is directly connected with the moving my life forward at what pace I'm progressing. So sometimes I need to speed up. Sometimes I need to slow down and pray about it a little more. But remember, that process is critical to moving your life forward. Fear is an immobilizer. So what fear does, it locks us down. When we could make a decision that would start moving our life forward, fear immobilizes me and I'm afraid to make a decision because I don't know what's going to happen. And it, it causes me to take one road that probably is not God's best for me when if I'd have had faith, I could have taken God's straight road ahead. We take the wrong road when we operate in fear. Faith and trust is virtually the opposite of fear. The Bible teaches us not to worry or dread, not to fear, but to have faith. And so when I go through my little routine of how I make an important decision, once I make that decision, I have to make it in faith and give it to God. I don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes I feel like later I made a good decision at that juncture, and other times I feel like, man, I wish I could do that over again. But when I make a decision, you've got to be in a place where you just say, Father, I've prayed, I've sought you, sought counsel. I don't know what else to do. This seems to be the right thing to do. I'm going for it. And I'll tell you how good God is. Sometimes we don't make the best, we don't make the best decisions, but God says, look, I can work with it. You humbled your heart. You sought wisdom from the Scripture. You took counsel. You prayed and sought me about the right answer. And you might not have done just exactly what was best, but I'm going to work with you on that because I like your attitude. I like how you put me first. I like how you're trusting in me. You know, we don't always have to know the best and the right thing to do. We just have to trust God. And when we're going this way, he'll just bend the road and turn it back right for us. So we just have to make decisions, and sometimes fear is an immobilizer. It breaks that process down. But when you have faith, then you can move forward saying, you know what? I know I'm not going to do everything just as good as it could be done, but somehow I'm trusting God to bring it all around and make it just right for me. Can I hear a great big amen? amen. I guess <clears throat> finance is probably one of, the one of the greatest classrooms of faith that we have. Uh, most of the faith that you and I build and grow is somewhere in the classroom of our finances. Um, finances are important to God, there's no doubt about it. Um, and finance is important to God. He mentioned it tw 2,300 times in the Bible. 
In the New Testament, it's mentioned five times more than prayer or even faith itself, finances. God cares about finances because he cares about us. And the proverb says that money answers all things. Money has a, is a part of all of our lives. If you have money, you have options. If you don't have money, you have fewer options. Every decision you and I make is somehow influenced by our current financial condition. If you had more, you probably would do something else. If you had less, you would for sure do something else. So money gives you options. God's concerned about finances because he's concerned about us. And he cares for us. And anything we need or anything we're concerned about, he's concerned about. You know, the fact is that Israel had three distinct economic environments that they lived through in the early days of, of their nation. Three economic environments, and I, I can relate to these three economies. First of all, they became a nation while enslaved in the land of Egypt. They were slaves. Um, they did not have enough. They had no freedom or ownership. They were slaves. Never enough. Barely staying alive, barely making it, they were slaves. And then God rescued them from Egypt and moved them into a 40-year journey across a wilderness. And uh, they were not slaves anymore, but they still had to eat. And so God caused a special dew to fall on the ground that over a short period of time would turn into something like a cake. It was called manna. And they would go out every day and they would collect only enough for their family for the day. And if they were to say, you know what, there's so much here, I'm going to get more than enough so I can store it for tomorrow. Overnight it would get worms and, and, and ruin and so they could only collect enough for the day. And in God's wisdom and power, since they could not collect manna on the Sabbath day, on that day, they could collect enough for two days, and it wouldn't spoil. Because that was the way God wrote the code in manna. But the point is this, they had just enough. In Egypt, they didn't have enough. They just barely existed. In the wilderness, they had just enough with no leftover. And then after 40 years, they entered into the promised land and they began to inherit houses and cities and farms and vineyards and flocks that they had not raised nor worked for. And uh, the Bible says that they began to sow and to reap and the manna ceased. So the third was a, an environment of plenty, an environment of more than enough, but it required sowing and reaping, hard work, good stewardship. They had to learn how to sow their crops and wait for harvest. They had to learn how to grow their flocks and their herds and, and, and increase their livestock. They had to learn how to live on a sowing and reaping budget basis. So the three economies that you and I can experience in our lifetime is barely making it, not really ever enough. The second economy is just enough, but none left over. 
And the third economy is more than enough. It's the promised land that is based on stewardship. Not long ago, I spent the day with a good friend of mine on the north side of Houston, and he had a lovely home and a beautiful place. He's a man that's now 80. He's never had a big job and made a big salary. Pastored a church for some 30 years before he retired, but that church never, um, never was large and lucrative. I served as an overseer for some 10 years, saw the finances every year. I know what was coming in. I know what kind of salary he was on. And yet at 80 years old, he's a man of wealth, a man of holdings, and he will leave his sons a huge inheritance. Not because in any given year did he make a lot of money and have a big job or have a big church or do anything big. He certainly didn't inherit any money. He started with nothing. But 60 years of good stewardship, 60 years of faithfulness to God, 60 years of good investments, 60 years of sowing and reaping, and now he's a man that has plenty of money and is going to leave a huge inheritance to all of his children. It's all about stewardship. All about stewardship. Never met one year where he made a lot of money in a single year. Never was a big income guy, but 60 years of faithfulness. So living in the promised land is about stewardship. It's about doing the right thing day after day, week after week, and year after year. The promised land is about growing things. You don't plant a seed today and eat it for dinner tomorrow night. You leave it in the ground and you let it mature. And eventually you get to go back out there and pick it and eat it and enjoy it. So you've always got to have something that's being sown and something else that's coming ripe. Because you've got to eat every day. And so you need something all the time. And it promoted stewardship. So you and I have to learn how to be good stewards and understand that money grows slowly. Money grows slowly. Over a period of time, good faithfulness over years and years, pretty soon, even though you might have started with nothing, it turns out you've got something of significance because you figured out how money grows slowly. And so living in the promised land is about being really good stewards. God cares about money because it's a character builder, a character builder. Uh, when we learn how to be good stewards and learn how to manage our money, it's a character. It's a skill. It's a part of who we are. It makes us bigger and greater and more complete as an individual when we handle our money well. Now, I know there's some people here today that do a very good job of that, and you're just waiting until I get something else because you got this part. But remember that we are a multiple-generation multiple church here. And we've got young people in the building that haven't even started earning an income yet. And they have to learn how to be good stewards. And they need to have the mindset that God has given them the power to get wealth so as to establish His covenant. The power to get wealth is, first of all, about abilities that He puts in us. Abilities. He's given every one of you the ability to, to produce wealth. You know, I watch junior and senior high schoolers, sometimes college students. 
that get that certain frightful look on their face because they realize adulthood is staring them in the face and they're about to start having to provide for themselves and make a living in the marketplace. It can be a very scary thing. And our children need to know that in them, God has put the power to produce wealth. We need to know that God has promised you as his child to give you the opportunity to put those skills and abilities that were in seed form in you. He's given you the opportunity to put those to work. You need to know that the blessings of God are on your life and he will cause whatever comes into your hand, cause it to multiply because he wants to bless you and he wants you to do very good in your life. So finances is a character builder and he wants to build our character. Finances also reveal the heart. Remember what Jesus said? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. In other words, we spend our money on things we value. And if we were to look at all of our financial expenditures from week to week, we would all see what we value most because there's a reflection by the way we spend our money, the things we choose to buy. I've often heard it said you can know most about a man by looking at his calendar and his checkbook. You see how he spends his time and his money, you'll see what he values. You'll see what is important to him. When someone is a giver in the house of God and week after week, payday after payday, they're submitting tithes and offerings and they're a part of the ongoing support of the work of God, it's a huge statement as to what they value. There's plenty of things to spend our money on. When we choose what we're going to spend it on, then it's a statement about our heart, what we value. Money definitely demonstrates priorities, priorities. When we put God first and uh, then pay everything after that, we're saying to God, you're first in my life. I don't pay everything else and then whatever I have left over, I give to you, but I give to you first and then everything else comes after that. I'm making a statement. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So I live by that. So that means that the first 10% comes out of my payday, not the last 10% or the middle 10% or what I can feel like I can afford, but my first goes to the Lord because he's first in my life. And it's also a huge statement of faith. You know, you've got to be a man or woman of faith to pay tithes. You've got to be a man of faith to believe that if I give 10% to God, the other 90% will go even further because I put God first in my life. So I want to encourage you to put God first in your life and truly trust in Him. So I'm going to come to a close. God has given us the power to produce wealth. The Bible gives us the wisdom to manage wealth. His blessing upon what we do increases what we would normally have done, our own abilities. He multiplies and he increases wealth. So because of that, trust. Don't worry. Dream big and act courageously. I just believe some of you are nurturing a desire, an idea, a dream that is a God dream. Now, I don't know about you, but not all of my dreams are God dreams. Some of them are just dreams. But God puts dreams in our hearts that's His ideas, His desire, His will.
And if, if we'll take those dreams and begin to act on them and get a prayer birth plan to start moving toward those dreams, God will bless us and he will cause that seed to grow into something wonderful and great. But all along the way, you're going to have to trust in him. And so I come back to where I started, right here. In God, we trust. Not in man, not in politicians, not in money, but we trust in God. The enemy has been tormenting you. I silence his voice in Jesus' name. If you've been struggling with fear, doubt, unbelief, and you've just been downright worried, I cancel that worry in Jesus' name. If you've been staying up at night wondering what in the world you could do and how to fix it and you can't sleep and the next day you're worn out because you tossed and turned all night, I speak peace and rest upon you so that you can just live knowing that in the morning God is going to be there to take care of me. I speak trust into you. If you're facing something in your health that you don't fully understand and you can't control, you're doing all you know to do and the doctors are too. I want to speak courage into your heart just to trust God with your health. Lord, this is my body. It's a temple of your spirit. It belongs to you. And uh, I believe you want it to be healthy, strong, so I can do your will. And I'm asking you, Lord, to let healing flow through my body. I'm trusting in you. I'm doing everything I know to do, but at the end of the day, I'm trusting in you. If you're concerned about your children, it's week after week. People come to me and say, pray for my son, pray for my daughter, and all these things. Because when you're a parent, you live for your children. It's hard to have a good life when your kids are not happy and not doing well. So I want to encourage you with your children. I want to encourage you to believe that the love you've shown to them through the years is going to hold them to you. And the seed of truth in God's Word that you've sown in their heart is ultimately going to come up and bear fruit in their lives. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that are really burdened and struggling for your children. If it's your business or your career, or maybe you're going to college and struggling, I want to encourage you today. God's going to help you. Just do the very best you can do and believe God is going to do the rest. You see, when we go into a frame of mind of worry and stress, we're not as sharp. We're not as quick. Our minds don't work. It's like static. We're using energy and we're using mental power and forces in the wrong way. But when you can just rest in the goodness of God, when you can just trust in God, your mind works better, you make better decisions, you do better, you're healthier in your body, just trusting in God. So I want to encourage you today to trust in Him. You can close your Bibles now. We've come to a close. Thank you very much. We've come to a close, and um, I feel to point this first invitation to those of you that have been struggling with worry worry. For me, worry is the battle between faith and doubt 
trust and fear. And um, it's something we're all susceptible to and we all have to conquer. And if you're dealing with a painful dose of worry, you just need to get to a place of peace. I, I guess you know this, but if you don't, let me be the first to tell you that there is a place of peace that you can go to in prayer. And the circumstance hadn't changed yet, and the problem hasn't been resolved yet, but there's a place of peace that you can go. The Bible calls it a peace that passes all understanding. Why are you feeling this peace? I don't know. I just found a place of peace. But the circumstance hadn't changed. I know it is crazy. But I just found a place of peace. And if you're here today and you need to find that place of peace, I want to ask you to come forward right now. Just stand up and come down. You know, if you're watching us online, thank you for joining us today. The beauty of God's Word is it just transcends the miles and the distance and the environments, goes straight to the heart. The Holy Spirit lands wherever my voice falls, and His power and grace is visiting you there. If you're watching today and you don't have that place of peace, then as I pray for these wonderful people standing before me, I want to include you in that prayer as well. Just receive it. Refuse fear, doubt, unbelief, and worry. And receive peace. Now, Father, this wasn't my idea but yours. This promise of peace wasn't something that I came up with or that I can give. It's all about you, Lord. And I'm asking you to put each of these people under an umbrella of peace. Let each of them find in their hearts that place of peace. Peace in the midst of a storm. Peace while we're waiting on you to bring about the miracle. Peace knowing that you are at work. We're trusting in you, Lord Jesus. For those praying for health issues, for those praying for finances, for those praying for career and college, for those praying for children and grandchildren, for those praying for marriages. I pray, Lord, that you would breathe your special peace into their hearts. In Jesus' name. Now hold out your hands like this. Okay, now just like I was going to put something in your hand, you would close it, right? So by the grace of God, receive peace and just close your hands on it. Say, Father, we're just going to walk in peace. Just going to walk in peace. Peace is going to guard my heart. Peace is going to control my mind. I will not be tormented. I will not be tortured. But I'll walk in peace because this is your promise to me. In Jesus' name. Everyone say amen. Thank the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for coming. You can go back now. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. 
we've come to the close of our service today. But there's a, an abiding presence of God with us. And it just seems that God has come near. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. But when you do, don't let it just be a, okay, church is over, type of a stand. But let it be a step forward and reach out to Him. And let's take a closing moment and just draw near to Him as we open our heart and pour ourselves out to Him and draw near to Him. Are you ready? Let's stand and do that right now. We worship you, Father. We praise your name. Thank you for coming close to us today. Thank you for your abiding presence in this house. We worship you today. We feel your nearness. I pray for the people of God that they would be saturated with the Holy Spirit. That they'd be filled to the overflow. I pray for the people of God as that they go to their home, they would take a deposit with them from the presence of God today. Go to their homes. Touch their families. Go to work and school with them tomorrow. Bless the work of their hands. Let them walk in assurance and peace and confidence and faith. And may there be no tormenting spirits afflicting the people of God. No tormenting spirits, but only the Holy Spirit upon them. In Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. Thank you for giving me time today to share with you from God's Word. On each side, our life team hosts are going now, and uh, they're going to be prepared to, to meet you personally and let you know a little bit about their life teams. Our prayer partners are going to the doors today to greet you before you leave, and um, we're just delighted to have you. God bless you. We love you. Have a great day. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you again in the house of the Lord.